Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, it begins with this. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So who is Peter addressing chapter 5 to? You could say, well, none of us, right? <laughs> He's addressing it to the elders among the churches. The term is presbyterios. If, if you heard, you know, Presbyterian sounds kind of similar. Um, it word, the word means elder, and it comes from Judaism. And in Judaism, the idea is the older and more, you know, therefore the older or probably be the more mature men would be the elders of either a tribe or an elders of a town or city. And they would be the, like the spiritual leaders in, in wherever they were at. Um, but the idea here that Peter is addressing the elders has less to do with age and more to do with maturity. And in the context of this epistle, it means that those who presided over the assemblies, different churches, Peter didn't write his letter to just one church, he wrote it to several churches. Uh, and so uh, the context is those who were basically leaders in the church. Now, that term presbyterius in the New Testament, it's used interchangeably for bishops, for elders, and presbyters pretty much interchangeably. So we're not talking about one specific office in in ministry. Um, I think if you want to put it in today's context, Peter is addressing those who would be basically pastors and elders or church leaders within the church. So that's who Peter is addressing in this beginning of this last chapter. Notice that Peter uses the word exhort, and he doesn't use the word command. Uh, what qualifies Peter to say these things? I don't know about you, but have you ever had somebody give you advice and they just go on and on and on and tell you about how you did do something and, um, and then you, you stop after a while and you go, wow, you must really be an expert in that. And they're like, no, I've never done it before. You know, I, I've had that happen before. And uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, especially maybe you, those of you that have children. You have somebody that tells you how they ought to raise your children. They never had children. They have no concept, you know, or, or same with marital advice and stuff. Um, it's hard to take advice from someone who has no experience. So what does qualify, uh, what qualifies Peter for what he says? Look what he says there. I, who am a fellow elder. You notice the humility that just kind of comes out in that from the apostle Peter. He doesn't state his apostolic authority. He doesn't say, I, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, command you to do this. He says, I'm a fellow elder and I'm exhorting you. To do this, so you really get the sense of his humility. There are some people who believe that Peter was the uh, leader or the head of the church on earth, and I just wonder: would the leader or the elder or the, or the leader of the church on earth call himself a fellow elder among other elders? Probably not. But so, being a fellow elder, 
There's a lot to what he is saying here. Basically, it means, and what he's conveying, I believe, to those that he's speaking to, is that he understands the role of an elder. You know, he understands what's required to shepherd God's flock. He also understands what it costs in terms of sacrificing, because it does cost a sacrifice uh, to be a leader in ministry. Not only is Peter using the qualification of fellow elder to exhort the elders, but look what he says here. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now think about who is saying that. This is the Apostle Peter, Simon Peter, one of the disciples. Think of the weight of what Peter is saying there. He's writing this to believers years after the fact, but he was there. He was the one who witnessed the suffering of Christ. He saw Jesus. He was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was was just in agony over what was going to take place that night. He was there. He and John were the ones that kind of lingered behind and followed and came into the court where uh, Peter was being, or excuse me, where Jesus was being tried before the Sanhedrin. And uh, he was also there, of course, witness of the crucifixion. And Peter says he's not only a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but notice he also says, but a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So not only was he a witness of those things, but he, was a, a, he says, I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And, and if you look at Peter, the person who wrote this, Peter was a recipient of God's grace. Do you remember Peter is the one, you know, Jesus said, you know, on the night before he was betrayed, he says, you know, you guys are going to be scattered. You're going you're to leave me. It's prophesied. And Peter said, man, they may all leave you, but I'm not going to leave you. I'll, I'll die before I leave you. And Jesus, you remember Jesus said, hey, before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me. And sure enough, Peter did deny Jesus. And when you read Luke's gospel, it says, because it happened at the time when he was in the courthouse or in the, in the courtyard and uh, Jesus was being tried there. And uh, it says in Luke's gospel that the moment that Peter denied Jesus Christ three times, that it says that Jesus turned and looked at him. Can you imagine being Peter, having Jesus look at you like, and it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. If you remember, just just get a feel for the shame that he must have felt, the disgrace, the guilt, the sense of failure. But Peter was a recipient of God's grace because at the resurrection, remember the angels, they announced the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and what did they tell the women? They said, and it's in Mark's gospel, they said, but go tell his disciples. And they says, and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. He's specifically pointing out Peter, Peter who really needed a sense of God's grace, a sense of God's love. And, and, and God provided that through the angel's words to the women. So Peter uses the word a partaker, and it's interesting that there's no other New Testament writer that uses this word. And it means expressing a present realization of something not yet attained. Peter's looking forward to the glory that will be revealed. Not only had Peter experienced God's grace in the face of his own failure, 
But remember, Peter was one of those that was also, he was one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the three that were, you know, Peter, James, and John were typically the ones that Jesus would pull aside from the other disciples and reveal that much more to him, to them. And Peter was one of those that saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Peter, uh, Jesus' divine nature was revealed to Peter, James, and John there on the mountain. And then, of course, what would have had the most impact on Peter, he was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All those things that Jesus said was all true. He was the Son of God. He was sent from heaven. He did rise from the dead. And Peter had living proof that there was life after death. And so when Peter describes himself as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Peter is pointing out that one day, he would be standing in Jesus' presence in eternity. And I think what Peter is trying to convey to the elders that he's writing to is that, hey, there's an eternal reason behind what you do as ministers, as leaders. There's a, as you do ministry, there's, there's, a, there's a reason behind it. You know, it's, it's sometimes people just do ministry because, I don't know, I don't know if it's a job or whatever, or, the, or they just, maybe they feel obligated to do it, or they just do it because nobody else is doing it, and we've got to get it done. But there's an eternal purpose behind everything that you and I do as in ministry, whatever ministry, not just pastors and elders. And we need to understand that, and we need to minister with purpose. And so what's the exhortation that Peter gives to the to the disciple or to the elders? He says, "Shepherd the flock of God which is among you." The King James version says, "Feed," but it's much more than simply feeding the flock of God. That word shepherd it means to tend. It means guiding. It means guarding. It means folding. Now, I don't know if you've ever folded a sheep before, but it means basically enclosing them in the fold, in a sheep fold, okay? Uh, putting them together in a pen or, or an enclosure. Um, shepherding means all those things in addition to feeding. And so he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Shepherding not because you have to grudgingly, but because you get to amazingly. That's something that I have to remind myself. It's, you know, sometimes, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes ministry can be, it can be like, oh, I got to do this, you know. But that's the wrong attitude to have. The attitude, the right attitude to have is, man, God, I can't believe that you allow me to do ministry. It's, I'm amazed that you would pick someone like me to do ministry. That's the right attitude to have. And so don't serve as overseers by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And I like the King James Version, if you read that. I'm reading out of the New King James. But in the King James Version, it says, Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And filthy lucre, you go, what's filthy lucre? It literally means base gain. And it doesn't mean that those who are in ministry... That is wrong to to earn a living from ministry. Some people have that attitude, you know. People people that do in ministry they shouldn't receive an income. No, it's biblical. It's biblical that that pastors should be uh, those in ministry should be supported by ministry. So it's not that receiving gain is bad, but it's when it becomes the motive for someone's ministry. 
when the motive is to get rich out of it, the motive is to be supported through it, uh, you know, to, 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 to gain from it, then it becomes dishonest gain, then it becomes filthy lucre. And then he says, nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where a pastor or elders or whatever, they exercise lordship over people. You know, basically, you know, they, they unquestioning authority. I've been under that kind of a situation before. It's, it's, not, it's not biblical. Now, there is a legitimate biblical position of authority that a pastor has over the flock that he tends. Listen, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. It says, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And then he also wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double, double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So there is a biblical place for apostolic authority. There's a biblical place for a shepherd's authority within uh, a church. But here, Peter is warning against the idea of a high-handed rule, you know, where the pastor or the elders, they make demands, where they can never, their authority can never be questioned, or where they treat others as subordinates underneath them. That's what Peter is saying. The King James Version, I keep going back to it. It says, neither is being lords over God's heritage. And it's interesting, when you look at that word heritage, it's an object used in casting or drawing lots, is what it means. It's like God's lot, you know, like drawing straws. You know, everybody, you, you have a fistful of straws, and there's one's a short straw, and everybody gets a straw, right? That's your straw, and if you, hopefully you're not the one that has the short straw, but... Typically, if you're like me, I'm the one that picks the short straw. But, um, but that's what a heritage is. It's, it's an allotment. And in the sense that Peter is writing here, each pastor gets a straw. Each pastor gets an allotment of people, of souls, to look after. Now, the New King James Version translates that to entrusted. Um, I like King James that says God's heritage. Because you see, I think what what King James the edition is saying is that they're God's people, and they've been allotted to you. They're not your people. That's a very important thing for those in, in authority and leadership and pastors that to understand. You're not my people. You're God's people. You know. So the pastor is not to exercise lordship over those souls God has entrusted to him, but like Peter says here, lead by example. And then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Again, a reminder, man, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. Everybody else is just under shepherds. They're just, they're just worker bees. But Jesus is the head shepherd. And I think what Peter is also trying to convey here. Um, when he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I think pa- Peter is saying, hey, you pastors, at the resurrection, you'll receive a crown of glory. Don't be seeking that crown here on earth. Don't be seeking that crown here on earth. Because remember, Jesus, 
is our example. Now, Jesus did receive a crown on earth, but you know what his crown was? It was a crown of thorns. It wasn't a crown of glory. He's glorified now, but on earth he received a crown of thorns, and he's to be our example. And so now, Peter, you, now none of that applied to any of you, right? Because you're like, oh, I'm not an elder. Well, Jay is an elder. It applies to him. But now Peter is addressing not only elders, but everyone, including the elders. Verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothed with humility. That word, it's the Greek word enkomboma. And it refers particularly to this long white apron or this long white outer garment that was commonly worn by slaves in that day. And so what Peter is saying is clothe yourselves, put on that garment, that attitude of being a slave to others. That goes against our grain, doesn't it? What do you mean? You want me to be a slave to somebody else? What it's speaking about is putting on humility, being willing to take any place or any position, being willing to perform any task, however humbling it might be, in order to serve and benefit other people. Peter says that's the attitude you're to have. Are you willing to do anything? It doesn't matter. It's nothing's above you when it comes to serving and blessing others. Clothing yourself in a slave's garment. You know that, again, think of who's writing this. This is the Apostle Peter. Peter had that lesson ingrained in him, in the school of discipleship, in the school of Jesus Christ. Let me read something, something to you out of John 13, verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and he took a towel and girded himself. He took a slave's garment, basically. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded, with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered to him and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. But Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And you remember in Peter's at that point, he's like, Oh, I think I just put my foot in my mouth again. And Peter's like, Well, then wash all of me, (laughs) not just my feet, everything. Uh, And, you know, Jesus says some more stuff. But skipping down to verse 12, Jesus gives the lesson of what he is trying to convey to Peter and the other disciples. And in verse 12, he says, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Uh, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, and we know that, right? We know that we're to serve one another, to wash one another's feet. He says, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. That's one thing to know, right? 
They don't have this head knowledge. But it's another thing to obey God's word and go, you know what? That applies to me. I need to, I need to put this into practice. You're blessed if you do it. It's great if you know it, but it's blessed if you do it. You're blessed if you do it. So going back to Peter. And, and so again, Peter, this is a lesson that Peter learned. I mean, he's not speaking just platitudes, you know, theory or anything. He lived it. He made the mistakes. He was humbled. And so this is the man who, who, who lived all that. And he's the one who's explaining this to the people. Verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I don't know about you, but that's probably one of the verses that a lot of people memorize. You know, it's so much better to humble ourselves under God's hand over our lives than to be humbled by God. It's a lot easier to just, you know, instead of going into something prideful and having God humble you, which happens, it's much better to humble yourselves. And it's so much better to let God exalt you in due time rather than trying to exalt yourself. I've had to learn that in my own life, in the workplace. That's, 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 sometimes that's where it applies, right? Like you want to exalt yourself. You, you got passed up for a promotion or passed up for something. It's like, oh, man. And, you know, and, and then if, if you grew up like in my home, you know, you're, you were told you need to be assertive. You need to stick up for yourself. You need to go tell them, you know. You need to fight for yourself, you know. And so what do you do? You go fight for yourself and you exalt yourself. It's so much better to let God exalt you. Just let him take care of it. And he will. And then he says, casting all your care upon him. Now, if you're a fisherman, the word casting probably sounds familiar to you. Um, the Greek word, word, verb, excuse me, casting here, it's not like, you know, like bass fishing maybe, right? You cast your tree. If you cast, you retrieve. Some people like to just cast, they throw your bobber out there and you just sit. But eventually you've got to retrieve it, right? But others are just, I'm not a very patient person, so I cast it out there, I've got to bring it back in. Cast it out, bring it back in. That's not what this is talking about. It's not casting, retrieving, and recasting. It denotes an act once and for all. Once and for all. Casting your cares upon him. Period. But even more than that, it means throwing the whole life with its care upon him. Listen to what Vincent's word study says. It says the whole of your care. Not every anxiety as it arises, for none will arise if this transference has been effectually made. In other words, once you cast or once you throw all your cares upon the Lord once and for all, you will have no anxieties that creep up, that you have to decide, okay, well, am I going to hang on to this myself or I'm going to cast it to the Lord? You know, we, some, we go through that exercise, right? Okay, i gotta, okay, I got to cast this to the Lord. If you have that attitude, hey, Lord, my life, I'm just casting it upon you. I'm in your hands. You're going to take care of me. You know, if you just do that, then when every time something comes, it's not a, it's not a big battle. Oh, am I going to carry this myself? I can't. i got to go to the Lord with it. But if you're like me, Okay, that, that's, perf- that's, that's a platitude. If you're like me, you know, hey, I, I've got to work through this. I, I have to remind myself, okay, I've got to cast my care upon the Lord. So if that's you, you're not alone. I'm, I'm one of those people too. But it's much better to just, just say, Lord, you have it. You have my life. And then to live your life that way. 
Now, it's interesting. Verse 6 and verse 7, I think, go together because the opposite of humility is what? It's pride. And pride, I think, prevents us from throwing all our care upon someone else to take care of us, right? Pride says, man, I can handle this myself. And I think being a man, and I can speak, sorry guys, but I think it's especially in a dangerous trap for men in particular. I think women generally have a little easier, you know, a little easier time asking for help, generally. Well, I'm not being, I'm being stereotypical here. But men, it's a harder thing, and I'm, I'm a guy. I, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I'm, I'm there. I know that. It's sometimes we're too prideful to ask for help. Sometimes, and like in my case, too prideful to seek medical help. <laughs> you know, we don't want to appear weak. And yet, that's exactly what we need to do. And so it's, a, it's you know, it's, it's for us guys, I think, especially, it's a tough thing. But Peter knows this. Peter was a very prideful person. But Peter was in the school of Christ and was humbled. And now, years later, here's this humble man who's learned from experience. He's, he's a wise person, but it wasn't just, you know, he just was born wise. No, he learned it in his life following Jesus Christ. And now he's speaking to these other elders. And like I said, other people in the church, not just the elders. Verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may desire. Notice what Peter did not say. Peter did not say, hey, your devil or your enemy, the devil, is a crouching lion. You know, he's laying in tall, tall grass waiting to sneak up on you. Uh, I mean, he does do that, but <laughs> that's not what Peter is saying here. Peter is describing the devil as a roaring lion. And he's depicted as a lion that's making a lot of noise. And a lot of noise is basically to terrify its prey. So he says, verse 9, Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That's interesting that Peter would say that, along with, you know, um, being sober and vigilant about the devil. Why does he say that? Why does he say, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world? And I'll tell you why. Because the devil uses our suffering to terrorize us, to intimidate us, and to try to paralyze us with fear so that we won't walk in faith, so that we won't do anything. We'll just curl up in a ball. And he may be a roaring lion, and he definitely is a roaring lion, but one thing you and I need to understand, although he's a roaring lion, he's been defanged by the cross. He really has. He no longer has a claim on you. But you know what? He still tries to frighten us. He still tries to intimidate us into believing that he does have claim on us. And that's why Peter is saying, resist him steadfast in the faith. And what faith? Faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The work that was done, because Satan's a defeated foe. But he's a roaring lion, but he's toothless, guys. If you have a relationship with Jesus, he's toothless in your life. The enemy roars at you. God's forsaken you, especially in suffering, right? That's, the, the, that's what comes loud at you, man. God's forsaken you. He doesn't love you. Look what he's doing to you. That's the roar of the enemy. The other roar of the enemy is, hey, there, there's no way you're going to make it through this trial. And then one of the hardest ones, man, you're alone. 
There's nobody. Nobody cares about you. God doesn't care about you. Other people don't care about you. You're on your own, buddy. That's the roars of the enemy, the lion. Peter says, resist him steadfast in the faith. And he says, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Your and my sufferings are not unique. Now, granted, the circumstances might be unique, right? You might have a certain circumstance that nobody has had that certain circumstance. Uh, The particular circumstances may be unique, but the suffering that those circumstances produce, they're not unique. Everyone suffers. Other believers down through the centuries have underwent the same type of suffering you have. And what it makes you realize, man, God's not out to get you, okay? God's not like, I'm going to nail that person. No. Others have suffered the same kinds of suffering that you have. And if they've made it through victoriously, so can you. I'd encourage you, man, read about the characters in the Bible. Read about, you know, Daniel. Read about Joseph. Read about all these, especially the Old Testament people and apostles, of course, and others. But read how they went through suffering and how they made it through victorious. Job's a perfect example. It'll encourage you. You can also read about the missionaries and people that, you know, centuries before that have gone through the most terrible things. They made it through victoriously. So can you. And you're not alone. Verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. We really need to kind of tear that apart for a few moments here. It says, But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. In other words, God's involved in what's going on in your life. God is not aloof or he's not absent to what you're suffering through. And then he says, after you have suffered a little while. Isn't that a relief? First of all, your suffering can only, is only going to be allowed to go to a certain degree. Christ is, Christ is not going to allow you to be suffered beyond a certain point. So you're, the, the suffering that you and I go through, it's to a certain degree and it's also for a certain duration. Now, it, granted, it may be your duration for a long time, but there's an after that's coming. And I'll just be, you know, I'll do the disclaimer. That after might be eternal life. You might suffer your entire life with whatever you're suffering. But this life is temporary. You have eternal life. And all those things, they're going to fade away. But there is an after coming. After you have suffered a little while. And God himself is involved because look what he says in the suffering. May God perfect you. Now that word perfect, that's a very interesting thing. And it's used throughout the New Testament. It, the root means to fit or to join together. The putting of all parts into a right relation or a right connection. It's used in the Gospel of Matthew for mending nets. It's used in Galatians for restoring an erring, erring, erring excuse me, brother. It's used in Hebrews for framing both the human body and also framing the universe. And it's used in 1 Corinthians for the union of the members of the church. So putting that all into one perspective, that word perfect 
God uses suffering in our lives to bring about a correct order to our lives where everything fits as it should. You might say, wait a minute, suffering doesn't fit into my life. <laughs> I mean, like, that doesn't fit. That came out of nowhere. But you see, God might be using suffering in your and my life to bring about the right perspective in our lives, an eternal perspective. Maybe we've been focused on the wrong things to give us a better priority in our lives. Because I tell you, going through suffering is the best thing. that it, it gets you focused on eternal things. It gets you focused on prayer. It gets you focused on, you finally realize, you know, some of this stuff is really fluff that I've been focusing on. This is where it's at, you know. Suffering will do that. And God uses suffering in our lives. So suffering is not always a bad thing. God uses suffering to establish us. What does that mean? It means to make stable, to strengthen. It says God uses suffering to strengthen us. It says God uses suffering to settle us. That means to lay a firm foundation so that, you know, as you grow in your suffering, and hopefully you're growing in your suffering, whenever those things come, you're, you've got such a firm foundation, you know that God loves you, you know that Jesus loves you, you know that He's not out to get you, you know that your enemy is a defeated foe. And you get that firm foundation, then as those things come, because face it, they're going to come. You're not going to get knocked over every time something happens. You've got that firm foundation. And God wants to do that work in each one of us. And so in verse 11, Paul, Peter says, To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, it's just a realization that God is at work in our lives. And he gets the glory. And, you know, really, he's in dominion over our lives. We, we, we say, you know, you're Lord. You know what Lord means? Lord means he's Lord. I mean, he's got dominion over our lives. He can do whatever he wants with it. When you say Jesus is Lord, that's what you're saying. You have full authority to do whatever you want with my life. And I'm going to submit to you because I know you love me. And Jesus does love us. He's not out to get us. He's not out to hurt you. He's, he might use things in our lives that are not very comfortable. But it's to cause us to grow, to mature us. And then Peter's closing words, verse, uh, Peter 5.12, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Silvanus. Silvanus wrote the letter, He's, he actually dictated the letter, or wrote the letter as, as Paul was saying it, speaking it. Well, who was Silvanus? That's the Greek word. It actually was Silas. Silas, he was with Paul at the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15. And the Jerusalem Council, you know, that was when the... Uh, they, you know, all these Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, and, and some of the Jews said, hey, well, you know, you first got to become a Jew to become a Christian. So you got to get circumcised. you got to go through all the rites that us Jews had to go through in order to be a Christian because Jesus was Jewish. You know, I mean, that's kind of the concept, basically. And so it became a major issue in the church. What are we going to do with these Gentiles? They're coming, they're, they're coming by the troves to the gospel. They're coming to faith in Christ. What do we tell them? And so they had a council together, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 15. And basically they came up with a conclusion. They wrote a letter, and they took it, and they sent it with Paul and Silas 
to Antioch to read it to the Gentile believers. And in Acts chapter 15, it says that they sent it with Paul and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So Silvanus, or Silas, he had a reputation. He was leading men above other brothers. So he had a reputation for spiritual maturity and leadership. And in Acts chapter 15, we get another little clue about Silas. In Acts 15.32, it says, Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. So uh, Silas was a leading man among the brethren. So he had a reputation, leadership. He exercised the gift of prophecy within the church through teaching, even to the point where he was recognized as a prophet. He's a prophet. We also find later on in Acts that he was imprisoned with Paul at Philippi. So he spent a lot of time with Paul. And now Peter, somehow he got wound up with Peter. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But he wound up with Peter. And here he is dictating that letter. Or Is dictating the one that says it or the one that writes it? I forget. He used to do dictations. Transcribing. So the person dictating is one that's saying it, right? Okay, so he wasn't dictating. He was transcribing what was being dictated. <laughs> Peter wasn't a dictator, though, but I guess he was, technically. But anyways. Um, anyways. So here you have Silas. He was a faithful brother, right? His life and testimony bore witness, not just with Paul, but with Peter also. And uh, so you see consistency over his lifetime. But you see something else. He was a prophet. You know, and I don't know about you, but some people, they like to to have this title. I'm a prophet. Or I'm an elder. Or I'm a pastor. I'm the pastor. You know, or or I'm this or I'm that. Um, This person who legitimately was called prophet, a leading man among others. So he's in leadership. Here he is sitting at the feet of Peter transcribing, thanks Luke, transcribing as Peter dictated. He was being a servant, clothed in humility. Verse 13, she who was in Babylon, and I'm not going to get into that, because, but she who was in Babylon, I think he's writing from Rome, she who was in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, Mark was not his physical son. Who was Mark? He's speaking about John Mark. And if you know who John Mark is, he was actually a young cousin of Barnabas. Remember Paul and Barnabas, they went on their first missionary journey together, and they took Barnabas's uh, cousin, a young guy, John Mark, with them on their trip. And young John Mark, unlike Silas, was not consistent. During their first missionary journey, partway through, John Mark said, man, this is too much for me. And he left Paul and Barnabas and went home, kind of to mama, so to speak. He, just, he went home. He just he couldn't handle it, and he left. And, and then later on, Paul and Barnabas, you know, the years go by, and you, you probably know the story in the book of Acts. Paul started thinking, you know, we, we started all these churches all over. We should really go back and strengthen them, you know, go back and visit them, encourage them. Barnabas goes, man, that's a great idea, Paul. Hey, I'll go tell John Mark to pack his bags, get ready to go. And Paul says, wait a minute. I'm not taking that guy with me. He dropped, he dropped the ball before. He, he, he abandoned us. I'm, I don't want to bring him. And it says that the, the, the disagreement between Barnabas got so sharp that Barnabas said, fine, I'm going to go 
I'll do my own thing. You go do your own thing. And so at that point, Paul went with Silas. And Barnabas, I think he went with John. I don't remember now. But, um, but they went different ways. And, you know, you think, well, that's pretty bad. Paul actually, you know, was fighting or arguing with someone, had a grudge. No. Later on, towards the end of Paul's life, Paul writes a letter to Timothy who says, you know, he says, send John Mark. He's, he's useful to me. So there, there was a reconciliation. So you don't look like Paul's this bad guy that was just holding a grudge against some young guy. But looking back at John Mark, he wasn't consistent. But at some point... He was restored to usefulness. And, you know, that's encouraging because, you know, we're reading through these, through these, these characteristics. You might say, you know, I've blown it here. Well, he's talking about that. Ooh, that hurts me because, man, I'm not there. We may have all failed in different ways, but don't give up. There's still hope for each one of us. Jesus can still use you and I. We're, it's never too late for God to use us as long as we submit ourselves to him. Now, it's interesting. Peter started this chapter alluding back to his own experience of receiving God's grace. And here he's finishing it by extending grace to John Mark, even to the point of calling him my son. I think that's just a beautiful picture of Peter. Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. That peace that comes to us it can, of course, it only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no peace without Jesus. You have to, it's only through him that we receive peace. But that peace, that initial peace, you know, it, to, to continue in that peace and to grow in that peace and to have that peace abounding in our lives, it only comes really when you and I clothe ourselves in humility. When we stop trying to build ourselves up. Because, you know, we can work so hard trying to, lift ourselves up or getting so offended about other people or man i i can't believe that they asked me to do that me why you know don't they realize how important i am you know we can get so unpeaceful when we're prideful and so you want more peace in your life humble yourselves not only to god in 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 all your areas of your life but also in your relationship with others and you want real peace in your life? Man, cast all your cares upon Him. And then, of course, in your suffering. And, you know, there are people that go through suffering and it wipes them out. And there's some people that have gone through suffering that aren't here today because it wiped them out. And they're, they've gone. It's like, that's it. I'm out of here. You know? It's unfortunate. It breaks, breaks my heart. It breaks your hearts too, I'm sure. But when God, when you and I allow God to perfect His work in us, even through our suffering, that brings about a greater peace. Because, man, you start realizing, you know, this world isn't all where it's at, man. There's an eternal home waiting for us. And finally, that peace is possible when we who have experienced God's grace like Peter did start extending grace, the same grace we received to others. And I tell you what, when you can just... You know, because people are going to be people, right? They're going to sin against you. They're going to say things. They're going to do things. When you can finally go, you know what? I'm not that good of a person myself. And Jesus Christ forgave me. And you know what? 
yeah, you've offended me, but you know what? I'm going to let it slide because you know what? God forgave me. I'm going to forgive you. When, you. when you can get to that point where you can just extend grace, it brings about a tremendous peace in your heart and your lives. And that's what God wants to do in each one of us. Why don't you stand? Let's pray.